Welcome, everybody. My name is Jacob Steele, and today I will be sitting in for Ross Makichi as interview host. And I'm super excited about today's event. I'm a huge fan of Leonard Cohen, as I'm sure many of you out there are. So I am the events coordinator for Banyan Books and Sound, and Banyan is Canada's most comprehensive bookstore that specializes in spirituality and healing. Banyan is an independent bookstore, and we are just this month celebrating our 50th anniversary. The store is open for in-person browsing every day, and we offer prepaid pickups, and also we do mail orders to anywhere in North America. Just visit banyan.com. Of course, today's interview event is part of our live podcast series, and you can find our podcast anywhere that podcasts are casts. Just look up Banyan Books in Conversation. So today, we will be interviewing Michael Posner, author of the new biography, Leonard Cohen, Untold Stories, The Early Years, published by Simon & Schuster. Michael Posner is an award-winning writer, playwright, journalist, and the author of seven books. These include the Mordecai Richler biography, The Last Honest Man, and the Anne Murray biography, All of Me. He was the Washington Bureau Chief for Maclean's Magazine, and he later served as its National Foreign and Assistant Managing Editor. He was also Managing Editor of the Financial Times of Canada for three years, and he later spent 16 years as a senior writer with the Globe and Mail. His book, Leonard Cohen, Untold Stories, draws on hundreds of interviews to reach beyond the Cohen of myth and reveal the unique, complex, and compelling figure of the real man. Through the voices of those who knew him best, including family and friends, colleagues, contemporaries, rivals, business partners, and his many lovers, the book probes deeply into both Cohen's public and private life. It also paints a vivid portrait of the era, including the social, cultural, and political revolutions that shook the 1960s. This book is the first of a trilogy spanning from Cohen's birth until 1970. It is a delicious and a powerful read, and it reads with the force of a novel. It looks good, it feels good, and I recommend it if you're looking for a holiday gift for somebody, for Leonard Cohen lovers out there. And again, we can ship it to you if you order it through Banyan. So, Michael Posner. Thanks Hi, Jacob. For Hi. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's very kind. I'm really delighted to be here. We're thrilled to have you. So, uh, as somebody who grew up in Canada yourself and a, a writer, when did you first become aware of Leonard Cohen? I became aware of him pretty early on as, as a university student. Um, I was aware vaguely that he had written poetry books, but I, I wasn't, I hadn't read them much. And then, but he, when he was making the transition from poet and novelist to singer-songwriter, he came to the University of Manitoba in January 1967, and and I was there. Uh, and he he performed, and and then they played the famous uh, National Film Board documentary. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen. And so that was really the first time that he made a, a significant impression on me. Um, his album had not then been released, but he was singing songs from it. So all these years uh, later, since you saw him way back in the late 60s, you've made this book. 
you must have had to interview hundreds of people. What was what was that process? Well, the process was really an interesting journey in its own right. Um, it could not have been possible to have done this book 15 years ago because the internet helped me find so many people that I would not otherwise have found through Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or some other social media platform. So that was an enormous boost uh, and advantage that I had. Um, typically, you would find somebody who had met Leonard, knew Leonard, had a story or two, and they would say, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so, and so-and-so would then refer you to two other people. And, and so the cast of characters, the dramatis personae, if you will, kept growing and, and, and growing kind of exponentially, so much so that, as you, as you noted, I think I'm, I'm somewhere north of 500 interviews. I can't remember exactly. They, they aren't all in book one. Some of them will be in the other books as well. Some people knew him for 10 minutes and had a great Leonard Cohen story, something somehow revealing of his character or personality. And others knew him for 50 years or more. So, so those people, of course, are more omnipresent in the book and in other books. Um, but if you had an interesting story about Leonard, some marginal encounter even, that was insightful or, or, or that from which you could take insights about him, then I was interested in your story. So it kind of was organic in a way. And you're still accepting new stories for the future books? Yes, if there is anybody out there in the vast Banyan Books audience um, and you have a good Leonard Cohen story, uh, find a way to get it to me. I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm easy to find. Awesome, okay, so let's get into the book. So uh, your book begins exploring how Leonard Cohen was the son of a prominent Jewish family in the Westmount area of Montreal. Can you speak a bit about the culture of Montreal at the time and this amazing family, the Cohen family? Yes, they were a very prominent family. Uh, much of this came from Leonard's grandfather, Lion Cohen. Um, although even Lyon was descended from a very distinguished guy himself. But Lyon was a very, very prominent businessman, entrepreneur in Montreal. Uh, he was in the clothing business. He was in the metal foundry business. The family built ships that dredged the St. Lawrence River in the 1930s. Um, he, he had his finger on, you, you couldn't find a Jewish institution of any kind in Montreal that Lion Cohen was not associated with. They occupied the, they were founders and builders of the, of the shul that Leonard attended as a child. They occupied three rows. Um, this was at a time when it was customary for, to wear on high holidays at least, high hats. You know, you'd dress up and wear a, a high hat. They were, they were, as somebody describes them in the book, Jewish royalty in Montreal. And so all the weight of that descended on Leonard Cohen. And the weight of it descended even more forcefully after his father dies prematurely uh, in 1944 when Leonard is still just nine years old. And Leonard finds himself with his mother, a kind of overbearing Jewish mother in some respects, and an older sister, Esther. And he is at nine, the man of the house. Um, so uh, 
and with an expectation that is placed upon him early and often that he will enter the family business and honor the Cohen family name by taking over one or more of the businesses. So a very interesting background. Yeah, there was a uh, quote from the book that I like about his relationship with his mother. Oh, there it is. Linda Clark in, in one of the interviews says, I don't think he ever takes the key out from under his mother's pillow. And she's referring to Robert Bly's book, Iron John, the idea that only by retrieving the key can young men escape maternal bonds and achieve individuation and full actualization. Yeah, so Linda was or is a student of Carl Jung, and, and that is a Jungian concept, I gather. I don't know that much about it myself, but I, I understand it is. And so this is a, she makes a very interesting point, which is perhaps worthy of further exploration at some point by other biographers. But to what extent was Leonard Cohen able to um, individuate himself and distance himself emotionally from his mother's embrace? Uh, and, and it raises the question, was his inability to ever make a formal commitment to any woman for any length of time um, does it derive from, from that, that inability? So I, yeah, it's an interesting quote you put your finger on. And you mentioned that his father died when he was around 10 or 11, is that right? Nine. Nine, wow, that's very, very sad. And his father was a military man, correct? His father had, and his uncle and, an, and another cousin, I think had served, had served in the First World War. His father had been injured in the war um, and those injuries continued to plague him through after the war, through his business life, his adult life, um, and undoubtedly contributed to his early, early passing, of which he kind of had a premonition. Um, but he was a military man, and, and Leonard was quite impressed by that and, and said on more than one occasion that had his father lived, he probably would have been sent uh, to study at the Royal Military College in Kingston. And, and been uh, a military man himself of some kind. And um, another aspect of his family was that he was a Kohenim, right? Which is a significant, um, can you describe what that means? So there, there are essentially three classifications of, of, of Jews. There are the Kohenims, Kohenim, the Levites and, and the Israelites. The Kohenim are the priestly cl class. They are the, the highborn, who uh, highborn Jews who, who protected and guarded and administered the old temple in Jerusalem. And, and to be a Kohen, you can actually detect this on, 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 in your DNA, whether you, that line of transmission is passed patrilineally. And, and so Leonard was, was a Kohen, the family were Kohenim, and he took this, this status very seriously, it, it, you know, Many Jews who are Kohenim, it's just a matter of fact, but not something that they pay much attention to. But Leonard, I think, was quite struck by the fact that he descended from this priestly, priestly line, and, and he took it very seriously. There's a quote in the book uh, from Leonard where he says something like, I always felt I would address the world. I always felt that. Yeah, that's correct. He, uh, he does say that. Um, and there are intimations of that in his first novel, The Favorite Game, published in 1963 as well. There's, a, there's also an anecdote 
I think it's in this book, I can't remember now, where he's in, in London in, uh, in the early 1960s. Um, and he goes to see a, a palmist, a guy who reads his palm and, and derives his, and tries to foretell his future based on the lines on, on his palms. And at this point, he's, he's a young, he's published a couple books of poetry, maybe just one, and, and he's maybe two, and he's largely unknown. And he certainly has no, has never articulated any desire or ambition in the music world. And the guy says to him, I see you standing before tens of thousands of people as a, as a performer. And, and, you know, Cohen, I, I'm sure was blown away by it, but uh, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Bash, his name was uh, Mir Bashir, a Persian uh, working out of North London. And, and Cohen later sent friends of his to see Mir Bashir, and he was accurate about them too. So uh, an, interesting, an interesting thing that this guy was so, so accurate about uh, predicting the future of these people. And Cohen was very interested in all kinds of mysticism and spiritual ideas. Yeah, from a very early age. Um, he, uh, well, he was interested initially in, in Judaism, of course. I mean, he was schooled in Judaism and in, in Jewish school as, as a child. Um, as a teenager, he begins to explore and, and into university years. He has an interesting friend named Robert Hirschhorn, who also comes from a powerful and prominent Montreal clothing manufacturing family in Montreal. And, and Hirschhorn is an interesting character because he has, uh, is he, he's, he's enmeshed in the, in, the, in the clothing world as a businessman, but he hates it. He really has spiritual and poetic and literary ambitions and musical ambitions like Leonard, but he's not as talented. But he also has this this mind that roves around um, uh, Sufi mysticism and whirling dervishes and uh, and Gajuraf and and all these interesting um, the theosophists and he brings these ideas to Leonard so Leonard becomes kind of imbued with that and then he he gets him into the I Ching the the, the rolling of the coins to predict your future and subsequently in the just sort of as the book as this volume ends, Leonard gets into Scientology very briefly. Um, and then subsequently in later books, in this more seriously into Zen Buddhism, a very demanding rigorous form of Zen Buddhism called Rinzai-ji. So all of that, and then of course he never abandons Judaism. He continues to, to investigate it. He continues to read books about Kabbalah, um, uh, goes to see a Lubavitch rabbi to study with him. So he, that spiritual quest is really an essential part of his character, fundamental. Did he not also, after leaving Mount Baldy, he spent quite a bit of time in India, right? Yeah, that, that will appear probably in the, in the third volume. But yes, in, 19, in early 1999, after spending about four years on Mount Baldy, uh, east of Los Angeles, as a monk, um, living a very rigorous life, you know, getting up at 3, 8, 3 a.m. to chant and then, <laughs> and then meditate for hours on end. He, um, he, he decides that, you know, I, I, I'm really not, <laughs> he's now 65 years old, I'm not cut out for this. So um, 
he decides he reads some books by a guy named Ramesh Balsakar, uh, an Indian guru, um, and uh, and he decides to go to go see him, and he loves him, and so he goes in '99. He's planning to go for a few weeks. He ends up spending four months in India, and then he goes back the next year, and back the next year, and back the next year. So he went four times to India, and um, and at the end of it, he comes back and he, he says, you know, I think my lifelong depression, which he had battled basically since adolescence, has lifted. I feel suddenly a little bit better. And Balsakar was the disciple of Visargadatta who wrote that classic. That is correct. That is, that's, yeah. that's absolutely correct. So Leonard read all that stuff. It's fascinating. And um, it, it seems like he was always on a quest. The quest took forms of spirituality, poetry, travel, and of course, women. Um, how would you characterize, and we talked a little bit about his mother, and, but how would you characterize his relationship with women through his life, especially the early years? Well, he's a guy who, who transparently had a very strong libido. Um, he he was always interested in women and always pursuing them. What what is sort of amazing to me was his ability to juggle relationships. That he he seemed to be able to charm women effortlessly, and even though they were largely aware of his um, other ambitions as other romantic liaisons, they seemed to be willing to give him a long leash. And 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 they loved him. They loved him for whatever he, whatever time and attention he gave him, they he gave them, and uh, and they were they were very tolerant. Um, so this was uh, he was relentless about it. He this this is a pattern that begins in adolescence and really doesn't end until um, I would say the late 1990s. So. That we're talking about, um, you know, forty or fifty years of of pursuit, active pursuit of women. I don't know what the, you know, the famous Will Chamberlain story of ten thousand women, but uh, I, I think Leonard is substantially less. But but um, he he was as the the phrase he was a bit of a swordsman in his day for sure. And he never did get married, right? Never technically married. I think the closest you could say he came was some sort of Zen ceremony that was quasi-marriage-like with Suzanne Elrod, the mother of his children, but never formally betrothed um, and never formally divorced uh, as a result. Um, you know, I like to say that whenever Leonard began to get comfortable in a relationship, uh, he began to get uncomfortable, and and he and he wanted to move on. You could even argue, and 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 people do argue this at various points in in these books, that his his interest in the women, to some extent, wasn't the women. Um, I mean, it was obviously at a certain level, but he was interested in the work, his work, his poetry, his music, and he was looking for raw material. And these women um, either became muses or inspired him in some way uh, to write 
to write his songs. And, and that was what mattered most to him, um, ultimately. That was his commitment. His commitment was to his art and not to the women, although he needed the women for emotional support um, constantly. You really see, I mean, in his work, he has so much insight into the nature of the human heart. And it seems like his education was in these relationships. Yeah, and, 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 and I think it's his ability to take the lessons of those experiences, the lessons of those relationships with these many myriad women and, and distill the essence of it into uh, a lyric and a tune and touch other hearts. I think, you know, the reason that Leonard Cohen uh, continues to be so uh, relevant to musical discussion of 20th century singer songwriters and the reason that I think he will continue to be relevant is because of the power of those lyrics and, and of some of those melodies that they do speak to us in a way that most musicians, even, even great composers, uh, don't speak to us. He, he does tap into the, the mysteries and the ambiguities and the nuances and the conflicts inherent in relationships. And, and, and he does it in a way that is not necessarily didactic. He's not trying to make pronouncements. He's willing to let the listener, the audience, you, uh, respond to his music in a way that is meaningful to you and let you interpret it as you as you might you know as you will he's not imposing he's not imposing a point of view on you and I think that's another reason why it works so well and that actually seems like one of his because the next question I was thinking to ask which is connected with this is his extraordinary charisma I mean I would say probably every single person in the book describes like they'll use the word charisma or, the, or they'll describe it and it was men and women he would he was like a a magnet to people and he wasn't you know forceful voice like a loud person he was very quiet but people were just drawn to him absolutely um there's there's a stillness at the heart of leonard cohen his ability to be still in any environment in a room on stage nothing seemed to phase him you know he was not he was never distractible or or so it seemed and 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 he was as somebody describes him in the book always the center of attention in a group without ever trying to be the center of attention or somebody describes him as just sitting there doing nothing and 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 people would come to him like moths to a flame and then there's a there's an anecdote that the American writer Dan Klein tells about going with Leonard to a cafe in, in Athens in the late 1960s. These are two young, at the time, two young, good-looking Jewish boys, both in the literary game, and they're just sitting there. And, and Klein is suddenly aware that all these young women who don't know who Leonard Cohen is, this is long before he became a star, they don't even know that he's a writer, let alone a musician. And they are coming to Leonard Cohen and just ignoring Dan Klein. And he's, needless to say, a little miffed by this, <laughs> perplexed. 
but he's acutely aware of it. Anyway, so yes, as you say, uh, there, are, there are iterations of this same idea um, expressed by many people. He just had this kind of ability to, this, this charisma, this, this magic. And, um, and of course, once you encountered him, he was able to embellish that magic with you know, brilliant rhetoric, with, with witticisms, with insights. You know, he, he was the whole package. And they all describe him as funny. Everyone says he was just a funny guy. He was hilarious. Sardonic, sardonic humor. It wasn't that he would, he yeah. wasn't telling a borscht belt, um, you know, Catskills jokes. He, he just had these witticisms that, that he could whip off, you know, that were, and they were often self-deprecating, uh, that he would, he would often make fun of himself, you know. Um, some guy once asked him, I don't think this is in the first book, but it's in another book. Um, and he said, uh, how, you know, Leonard, how, how was the winter? How was your depression? He said, well, I, I didn't commit suicide. <laughs> yeah, there's so many little stories like that in the book. My little like lines that he says. Um, another aspect that I, I, when I was reading the book and I was trying to think about what is this charisma? Like, where is it coming from? And one of the ideas I had <clears throat> was that he had such a wide-eyed curiosity about everything. And like you mentioned a, a minute ago, how he, he wouldn't accept a position necessarily. He wouldn't accept received positions on things. So he can look at things in a new way and he'd be able to reflect that to someone. So someone comes to them and he just sees them as almost their mythical uh, poetic existence and, and it's reflected to them. That's an interesting observation for sure. Yes, um, he was definitely an out of the box thinker. Um, he, he was able to, people would ask him questions and they would anticipate uh, a response. You know, there, sometimes it, was, it would be political. You know, they would say, you know, uh, how do you feel about Quebec separatism, for example, which was threatened to divide the country of Canada. And he'd say, oh, I think, Quebec doesn't need to separate. It already is a separate country. Um, or they would ask him about the war in Vietnam and he'd say, yes, I'm aware that many of my generation are against the war in Vietnam and I understand their feelings. Um, but really, you know, um, today's revolutionaries are tomorrow's fascists and we need to be careful about that. Um, so he was, he was, he, he would often take a different tack. And that, I think that was part of his appeal. He was, he was able just to make arresting comments and, and brilliant insights that, that really stopped you. Um, many, many musicians who traveled with him, you don't hear so much of them and hear from them much in this first book, but you will in later books. And, and these are guys who, you know, trained at, at uh, Juilliard and, and other famous musicals training institutions. And, and they could do any kind of music that from classical to jazz, they could do it all. And suddenly they're playing with Leonard Cohen and he's offering these stripped down melodies and stripped down lyrics, monosyllables often in his lyrics. And, and it takes them a while to kind of get him, to understand what he's trying to do. For them, you know, and, and, and they come away from this experience saying, 
the most remarkable man I ever met by far. You know, uh, they, would, they would talk about, I learned to play the space between the musical notes. I mean, the words that came out of their mouths after an immersion in the Leonard Cohen experience, three months on the road in Europe or something like that, it, it's really extraordinary. And there's such, such a consensus on this. There's just, there's no deviation. Um, he, he just had the ability to charm people men and women alike. And he could weave that magic somehow. Absolutely. So in, um, let me get the year here. Um, oh, okay, we haven't got to, okay. <laughs> so in the 1950s, he goes to McGill University and quickly becomes a rising star in the lively poetry scene that orbits around Irving Layton. Who was Irving Layton and what was his impact on Leonard's development? Huge. Irving is a huge figure. He's he's a larger than life figure in his in his own in his own mind and 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 in his period. He he's the author of many, many books of poetry. He's a notorious, like as Leonard becomes, a notorious womanizer. Um, uh, he's a guy who who thinks that you need to embrace life and, and just seize experience and, and live it as large as you can. And that all of that will funnel into your persona and you'll be able to write about it. And, and so Leonard uh, from basically 1954 on becomes, I'm not sure he becomes a disciple or, uh, or, that, or that he's, he's mentored by Leighton, but to some extent he probably is. And they spend hours upon hours um, studying poetry together, cracking, as, as Leighton used to say, let's, let's pull down a book and crack open a poem, Leonard. And they would dissect it line by line. And so these are very much, uh, he spent a lot of time and had a lifelong admiration for Irving Leighton. Um, but I think the influence goes beyond the poetry. I think it goes to how to live your life. You know, he, there's a famous line that Leighton, uh, Leighton used to say to Leonard, now, let, now Leonard, make sure you do the wrong thing. <laughs> and, and according to Irving's uh, partner at the time, Aviva, uh, Leonard made sure he did do the wrong thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, okay, so then in 1960, with the help of the, actually one of the in, interesting things about the book was to see how these organizations like the Canada Council for the Arts and uh, National Film, these were all very young organizations. And I, I got a, a, a flavor of kind of, it, we think of them now as these major institutions, but at the time they were kind of more uh, just happening. And anyway, so with, with a bit of money from the Canada Council for the Arts, Cohen manages to get to Idra, the island in Greece. And there he meets Marianne Ealing, who became the inspiration for the song So Long Marianne, Bird on a Wire, and Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. So first of all, can you describe the culture of this island of uh, Idra and also his relationship with Marianne? So there's two cultures on, on Idra. There's, there's the, the Greek native culture that are um, largely impoverished fishermen, craftsmen, restaurant owners, what have you. In, in 1960, when Leonard 
arrives, it's a very small, largely undiscovered place. But, but even in the mid 50s, it had been discovered by William Burroughs and, and other uh, British writers and Australian writers. And so when Leonard arrives, there is already a kind of uh, expatriate community of artists and writers mainly uh, to which he is invited uh, into the embrace of um, and, and quickly becomes part of. Um, and Marianne Illin uh, has in, in the spring of 1960 has just separated from her husband who is a, um, a Norwegian novelist himself uh, and a young Norwegian quite successful at the time and she has this young child, Axel Jr. Um, and Leonard is quite taken with her and she in turn is uh, quite taken with him. And basically by May, June of 1960, they are cohabiting together and they cohabit together on and off. Um, and there's a lot of off periods during this decade, but they cohabit together on and off through I would say 1968, um, by which time Leonard has, has decisively moved on, um, definitively moved on. And during that period, of course, he's connected with many other women and she in turn, during his many abs absences, is connected with, with many men and sometimes women. So uh, the fidelity was not a strong feature of, of life in this <laughs> expatriate community of Avidra, and there was, in addition to the infidelities, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug taking, and, and subsequently a lot of suicides, an extraordinary high percentage of suicides. It, 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 it has this aura of, you know, the great romantic idea, idyll, where the, the writer is writing away and writing his poetry and creating his songs and, and living this wonderful sybaritic life. Um, pastoral life and and the reality was was actually quite different there was a lot of unhappiness a lot of uh, uh, a lot of anxiety a lot of drug taking and 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 a lot of lives lost or ruined on the back of that uh, ideal yeah, there's this quote from leonard in the book where he goes once you've lived on idra you can't live anywhere else including idra yeah, you, you, you can't take it with you. Um, it's, it's whatever you have on Idra, it, it, you know, it's, it's like that fame of saying about Las Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And, and what happened on Idra, the, the romance of Idra remained on Idra. You couldn't, when, when Marianne Illen arrives in Montreal in January, 1964 with her baby, thinking that, oh, we will just transplant our happiness from Idra to Montreal, that didn't happen. Um, and, and you couldn't recreate it. it. It was of its time and of its place, and only of its time and of its place. And I guess, of course, there's the famous letter, often misquoted much later, when, when she was passing away. Um, but uh, that, that seemed like a very... Um, of all the relationships, at least of that time, it seemed like that was one where they really loved each other and it really held for a long time. I have no doubt there was genuine love there at, at one time. Um, you know, uh, he learned, this is the summer of 2016, that she was very close to death and he wrote this very touching letter to her and, and, and it was 
broadcast and distributed around the world. And 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 I've and she was a very important person in his life during the early and mid 1960s. There's no question about it. But he had strong relationships with many women. Um, uh, his his engagement and his relationship to uh, with Rebecca De Mornay in the, in the late 1980s and early 1990s was was strong. His relationship with Dominique Iserman, uh, a French a Parisian based Paris based photographer and videographer was very, very strong. Um, so Marianne was very important, but so were these other women. And, and who was, uh, who were the two Suzannes? The two Suzannes are the Suzanne who inspired the song, Suzanne who played at the top, uh, Suzanne Verdal. She was at the time um, a partner of a, of a, of a French uh, Francophone sculptor, uh, Armand Viancourt. Uh, I think they might've separated. Uh, there's some ambiguity about that relationship as there were about many relationships at the time. And there's some ambiguity about whether Cohn in fact had a romantic liaison with Suzanne Verdell. But she inspires the song. She's a kind of flower child of the 1960s. She's living with a daughter in, in this loft at the, at the south end of Montreal by the river, just as the song basically describes it. As Leonard said himself of that song, it's basically reportage. It's, it's, it's what I saw, it's what I felt, it's what happened. Um, the other Suzanne, whom he meets in 1969, is Suzanne Elrod, and who she becomes the mother of his two children, Adam in 1972 and Lorca in 1974. And, and their relationship endures, again, fitfully, uh, with, with stops and starts, um, and, and any number of infidelities on both parts. Uh, until 1978, when she leaves him uh, and takes the children and goes to the south of France uh, with a French lover. Um, and um, so, so those are the two Suzannes. So his uh, first book was published, Let's Compare Mythologies in 1956, correct? Correct. And then his own first album comes out in 1967, The Songs of Leonard Cohen. So there was a gap of over, over 10 years there where he was a poet and a literary figure. Um, and a novelist, two novels. A novel, yeah, two novels. And, and uh, I believe, did he write them both on the island of Egypt? No, no, definitely not. Um, he actually began the first novel while he was still in Montreal, uh, worked on it in London. Right. He did work on it in on Idra. He definitely, I think, he finished the favorite game while he was on Idra. So he worked on it in various places. Uh, Beautiful Losers, which is published in 1960, he spent the better part of 64 and, and 65 on Idra, finishing that novel. Uh, although it too probably begins earlier and might have begun in Montreal. Um, so yeah, those are the two novels. Right, so he's he's a, he's a a very respected. Uh, he's not making a lot of money at it because it's hard to make money in that. But he was very respected, and he'd give these poetry readings, and people would just be in awe. But he makes this transition to becoming a songwriter. What inspired that or motivated that? So I think there's a, a couple motivations, but but a major one is Bob Dylan. 
Uh, he must have, I don't know when precisely he first heard Bob Dylan's music, it's probably 62, 63. Um, but he hears Bob Dylan and, you know, I can't, I can't definitively say that this is what went through his mind, but you could certainly speculate that it did, that he's listening to Bob Dylan, who he regards as a true poet, a genuine poet, uh, as, as worthy of, of that title as, as, you know, anybody. Uh, and he says, hey, this guy has a terrible voice. His guitar skills are okay, but they're not sensational. I have a terrible voice. My guitar skills are okay, but they're not sensational. And I'm a poet. I can write as well as he can. And if he can do that and get on the cover of Time magazine, why can't I? And so I think hearing, hearing Bob Dylan in whatever year it was, 1963, 64, uh, is, is a huge catalyst for his career. But then, you know, Bob Dylan is in his 20s. He, he's a young guy. And Leonard Cohen is a decade older. And suddenly he's shifting gears, trying to abandon literature and poetry because he can't make a living and become a singer-songwriter. And, and that's not simple. Um, so he writes a few songs. He gets them performed by a Canadian group called the Stormy Clovers, uh, and, and who love his work. But he's, he's not getting radio play. And he's nowhere in the United States. And his manager at the time, Mary Martin, is a friend of Judy Collins in the folk music scene uh, in, in New York. And she says, you know, Judy, I've got this, got this client in Canada and he's a great poet, but he's written a few songs. Would you listen to them? She says, sure. And as it happens, Collins is just in the middle of, I forget which album, her fourth or fifth album she's recording. And she needs a couple of tracks to finish the album. And Cohn comes to New York and plays her Suzanne and a couple other songs. And she is blown away by Suzanne and the other songs. And, and he says, you know, uh, he says to her, I'm not sure it's a song. She says, oh yeah, it's a song. And, uh, and so she puts it on the album. And, and so Judy Collins becomes the second great catalyst of his career because she popularizes that song and the name Leonard Cohen and starts inviting him to appear with her in concert, gets him a gig in, uh, at Newport in 1967. And uh, so she's, she's a huge contributor to, to his, his launch at least. And, 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 and then he goes to Europe and he becomes um, recognized as a, as a kind of chansonnier uh, and, and, they, and Europe simply embraces him in a way that uh, even North America or even Canada did not at the time. So those, that, therein, I think, lies the, um, the beginnings, the genesis of Leonard's musical career. And, um, and Judy Collins describes, and I think there were more than one instance early on, actually in the book, there's a few times where he's playing for friends, but also when he goes out on, on stage with larger audiences and he, he actually starts crying and leaves in the middle of the set and he's like, I can't sing. And it seems like in the interviews, like half the people he, he played the songs for just thought he should drop it. Like, Yeah, he, he listened. I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a poet, he was a novelist, and, but he had played guitar since he was 15. He, you know, he was always the life 
of the party in the sense that he'd bring his guitar and sing songs, folk songs, what have you. And suddenly he wants to be a professional performer. Now that's to, in the minds of his friends, in the eyes of his friends, that was a, a bridge too far. And so, and they were candid with him in expressing their skepticism about his ability to do that. But, but, but he managed to do it. And, uh, but he did it, you know, he was very, very nervous to go on stage. He didn't have a lot of confidence. Um, even in the mid 1960s, when he's already more or less established and he's spending three or three or four months touring in Europe, his musicians working in, with him in the band were aware that he, he didn't have much musical confidence. He had confidence as a human being, as a man, but he didn't have musical confidence and, and they could see that. Um, so that took a long time to develop and mature in him. Um, he was very trepidatious at the beginning. And there was that, um, I think Judy described a kind of vulnerability and it, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, Bob Dylan's connection with Joan Baez. Not that he, that was very complicated and messy. It was a very nice, easy relationship with Judy Collins, but the way that she was this bigger star who saw the vulnerability and the talent and sort of brought him to the bigger audience. Yeah, there's a, there's a famous event. I think it, what, what became the um, a famous nightclub in, in New York that she's doing a benefit concert of February 67, I think. And um, February 67. And he goes on stage to play Suzanne and he, as you alluded to, he can't finish the song. He, 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 he kind of breaks down and he walks off the stage. And she says to him, you got to go out there and finish it. He says, I can't. He says, yes, you can. And she takes him by the hand. She goes out there with him and she helps him through the performance. And, and I think that happened more than once, but, but he managed to overcome that fear because uh, he was, audiences just loved him. You know, that, that same uh, charisma and magnetism that he could manifest in one-on-one -on -one relationships he was able to manifest before thousands of people. And so you see it again at, at the Isle of Wight in 1970, which is near the end of volume one, where he goes on at 4 a.m. You have 600,000, an estimated 600,000, maybe it's 300,000, who knows, doesn't matter. And, and this is a rowdy crowd. They've, they've, it's, they're, they're, they're drunk and they're drug-induced. In, and, and they're lighting bonfires and they're hurling beer bottles at performers like Chris Christopherson and Joni Mitchell and, and uh, Jimi Hendrix and they're rowdy. And Cone goes on at 4 a.m. I'm sure he was on Speed or Mandrax at the time. And he just had this calming ability. And suddenly the crowd, you know, he asked them to, to light, a, light a match or light their, their lighter. And, and, uh, and suddenly they're all in sync with him. They just quiet down. He plays a 40 minute set or whatever it was. And, and he's completely mesmerizing. And so, you know, as I say, that, that same ability uh, was transferable from a single woman or man sitting in front of him to, to a cast of thousands. Absolutely. So, 
in the, in the researching uh, of this book and the in the creation of these this series, was there anything that really surprised you or changed your view of Leonard Cohen? I don't know that so much surprised me. I was struck. I I was struck by his, as I mentioned earlier, his ability to juggle simultaneous um, sexual relationships with women. Uh, it, it's it. It's, it's jaw-dropping on occasion. Um, and I was struck by his, his work ethic. Uh, I mean, there are times when you think he's doing nothing but seducing women, but, but, but he did produce a lot of work and he, was, and he was meticulous about that work. You know, uh, we talked about the 180 different versions of 80 different verses of Hallelujah. And then there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours spent on uh, on the translation of the Lorca poem "Take This Waltz" that he he records in the in the 1980s. Um, he was he would work at it and 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 then he'd put it aside and he'd come back and he'd see that he wasn't happy with it and he'd keep working at it. So the work ethic I don't know if I call it surprising, but but I certainly was forcefully struck. By, by how seriously he took his craft. Yeah, somebody said that uh, he spoke the way that he dressed, you know, that meticulousness, always from the beginning, you know, he wore the suits like from the Friedman company or whatever, from his family style. Yeah, they're, 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 everything was of a piece with Leonard. The, the, the costume he wore, the simplicity of his, of his language, the simplicity of his poetry, uh, the Spartanness of, of the homes that he lived in. You know, he was content with a kitchen table uh, and, and there was no art on the wall. There were very few, he, you know, even when he made money, he wasn't spending it on material acquisitions of, of any kind, no art, no fancy cars. He, he, he wanted to contain everything. And so in a way, when he, Later, when he goes to Mount Baldy in the in the 1990s, and and lives as a monk, you know, in in a in, the, in a certain way, it's not different than the life he was already living. All he needed was a a good light and a good table and a pad of paper, and he was a happy camper. Um, it's an interesting transition because he had grown up essentially in the lap of some luxury with a family that had a nanny and a chauffeur at one time and, uh, and the accoutrements of, 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 of affluence and wealth in Westmount. And he kind of rejects that, you know, at a time when, when Jews in Montreal who had grown up on the plateau, the poor part of Montreal, were aspiring to get into Outremont and Westmount, Leonard Cohen, who grew up in Westmount, ends up buying this rundown cottage, uh, really a shack you know, on San Dominique Street, uh, a block west, a block east of, of, of the main, and, and um, living a very, very simple life. So I'm going to uh, get to the audience questions. I'm going to remind everybody, you can put your questions into the Q&A. Anything you ever wanted to ask about Leonard Cohen, but were afraid to ask, this is the guy he's really studied up. So, okay, let's... Um, Let's get to questions. Dennis asks, 
from your research, how well does the Marianne and Leonard Words of Love film capture their relationship? Yeah, I thought he did a pretty good job. It's a it's an interesting film. I think it's more a kind of love letter to Marianne, with whom the filmmaker Nick Broomfield actually had a brief liaison himself in 1968. Um, and I think it's it's pretty honest about you know alcoholism and drug abuse and sexual peccadilloes and all of that stuff. Um, so pretty candid. Um, I, I thought it was a very good film. Um, uh, Jessica asks, how is writing this biography different from writing your other biographies? So it's similar to the um, Mordecai Rissler one because it all this one also uses oral biography and and just for those who may not be entirely familiar with that kind of subgenre, oral biography essentially means that 90 or 95% of all the words in the book are the words of the people I've interviewed strung together, edited in a, in a way that I hope has some coherence and, and, chrono and, and reproduces, reconstructs Leonard's life in a chronological fashion. And my role is simply to kind of be the uh, tour guide um, and to connect the dots, um, try to set up certain situations or, or whatever, but, but very, a, a very minimal role from a conventional biographer. I, I impose or attempt to impose no point of view on any specific incident or even on Leonard's life writ large. I'm not here to interpret him. Um, that's for the reader to decide. And it won't be easy at, at times because frequently you will hear people discuss Leonard and offer completely contradictory points of view about him. And frankly, I think that's fine. I think that ambiguity is, is part of who he was and arguably part of who we all are. And that any attempt to kind of pigeonhole or reduce uh, people to one thing or another. I, I think we have to try to embrace cognitive dissonance here that people can be a saint and a sinner, an angel, a devil at the same time. And Leonard was a hugely complicated guy. And, and so I, I hope that oral biography, this format, which is different than conventional biography, somehow gets us closer to the real human being. It's, it's not just a kind of uh, recitation of his career uh, or the people he encountered. It's more, what was this guy's daily life actually like? Uh, what, what happened when he woke up in the morning? Who did he have lunch with and what happened? That kind of small anecdotal detail that hopefully in its totality offers a, a more complete nuanced picture of him, who he was. And I felt in reading the book, the image that came to me is like a photo mosaic, where you have the big image of Leonard Cohen, but it's made up of hundreds of yeah. little pictures of him. Pixels. And pixels. pixels. And, and from that, you, you get this, but it's always, you know, you, you can never fully know, you know, who he is, but you get you, it. You can't. The mystery will remain. And, and there will be many other biographies in, in the years to come that will attempt to explore one or more aspects of Leonard Cohen or Leonard Cohen's relationships or, or what have you. And, 
and and I think that's a tribute to him. He is, you know, I I refer to it. I've done this before. I ref, I refer to it as as kind of uh, like Kurosawa's film. You know, Rashomon. This is Leonard Cohen as Rashomon. So um, Mina asks, were you able to interview any other living Canadian poets popular at the same time as Leonard in the sixties? Uh, a couple, Seymour Maine, uh, a younger, somewhat younger demographic, but not many years younger, maybe 10. Um, David Solway, uh, Michael Harris, uh, Ken Norris, uh, Bill Fury, uh, maybe a couple others, uh, Noah Zacharin. These are younger guys. Um, uh, Wexler himself, to some extent, a poet. Um, uh, Louis Fury, who became much better known as a composer and musician, uh, but but started out with aspirations of to be a poet. So so some uh, nobody is famous as Leonard, of course, um, but Seymour Maine is is well known and and deservedly so, and has written many best-selling and prize-winning books. And David Solway is a brilliant poet. He spends most of his time writing music these days, but he was a brilliant poet. Um, Karen asks, did Leonard receive family money that helped enable his creative endeavors? To some extent he did, and, and you have to remember the amounts he received in the late 50s and early 1960s um, were more meaningful in raw terms than they would be today. So, you know, he received he ends up buying this little house on Idra in September 1960 with the $1,500 that he inherited from his, his late grandmother. So $1,500 seems today like a pittance, but, but in 1960 terms, it was a significant amount of money and it allowed him to buy a house that I'm sure is worth a million dollars today and a million American dollars today because um, it's still in the family. Um, he received some money from his father's estate. These were controlled by his, his uncle Lawrence Cohen. Um, and when he spends uh, a year or so at um, Columbia University in 1957, uh, it's basically based on monies received from, the, from his father's estate given to him by his, by his uncle Lawrence. Um, so some money and money that was meaningful at the time but not money meaning when he lived on Idra, he was he was struggling. You know, he was winning poetry awards and getting the you know, grant from the Canada Council, but he was he was struggling. He was having to come back to North America to write freelance um, magazine articles for whoever would buy his his talent. So he was it it was not enough to live on. Um, Gert, Gert asks, uh, what was his relationship like with his children? Well, um, that's a complicated question. Uh, it doesn't really obviously matter much to this volume, but because his kids aren't born until 1972 and 1974, uh, I would say it was, it was as complicated as the rest of his life. Um, he, he is certainly in, in the early years of their lives, he's not much around. Even before the end of that relationship with 
Suzanne Elrod and she goes to France in 1978 and takes the kids with her. Even before then, he is, you know, frequently traveling uh, on the road, away. He's in and out. And, and so I don't know that there was a lot of uh, great bonding that went on in those early years. Although, as was characteristic of Leonard Cohen, when he was with you, he was fully with you. And so I think the kids probably did emerge with a very strong sense of, of who he was and a strong relationship. Uh, I think their teenage years were difficult and, and there may have been some um, fractures and some fractiousness uh, and tension in, in those relationships, but those were ultimately healed in, in the later years uh, or largely healed. And, uh, and his daughter Lorca comes to live with him in Los Angeles in roughly 1991 90, or 1992 and, um, and stays with him um, for, for many, basically till his death in 2016. So, um, so again, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to reduce those relationships or describe his, his per, parent, parenting skills in, in three words. It's, it's complicated. Jessica asks um, about the, his relationship with Joni Mitchell and Rufus Wainwright. So Joni first, uh, he, he meets, um, early in 67, I think he meets her at Newport uh, Folk Festival in 1967, and they begin a, a relationship that spans maybe the better part of a year. He spends some time living with her in her home in Los Angeles. Um, it's a relationship that has even then its ups and downs. Um, she writes a few songs that kind of describe that relationship, not always in the most flattering terms to him. She's acutely aware of his infidelities and probably not happy about it. She quotes, she essentially quotes his mother in one of her songs as saying, um, I'm paraphrasing, these aren't the exact lyrics, you know, be with him, love him if you must, but be prepared to bleed, uh, which, which, I, I imagine that is a line that Masha Cohen might well have said about Leonard. Right. Um, and and so and they remain kind of kind kind of friendly, uh, certainly respectful of each other's work in the in subsequent years. They see each other occasionally, um, not not particularly close, I don't think, but respectful and friendly and warm and appreciative. Of, of each other. Um, and three songs might have been about him, right? From, from Johnny? Uh, three that I'm aware of, maybe even others. What was the second part of that question? Uh, Rufus Wainwright. Rufus. So Rufus comes into his life uh, in Montreal when he's the, probably in the 1980s. She's a good friend of, of his daughter Lorca's and they're childhood friends and remain friends, so much so that when Lorca decides to have her first child, uh, she asks Rufus to be the sperm donor. Um, so Rufus, uh, it would be wrong to call him a friend of Leonard Cohen, but he would certainly have been in his company many, many times and would have, would have some insights um, 
about him um, and certainly a huge regard for his musical talent. Uh, Rufus himself is, as you know, a bit of a genius, musical genius. So, um, so they, would, they would certainly have bonded as artists together. Fran asks, uh, did Leonard experience anti-Semitism? And if so, how did he respond? Yeah, there's no doubt that he did. There's a, there's a, there's a long sort of event or incident that occurs that I'm sure is based in reality. Um, I mean, Jews in Montreal who were so entrepreneurial and so controlled the Montreal clothing business and the factories in which mostly francophones were employed uh, were certainly conscious of anti-Semitism from, from the factory workers. Uh, he would have heard these stories from his uncles and his father, perhaps. Uh, but the incident that I'm alluding to in the novel is he goes to a nightclub with his friend and they, they have a kind of encounter with some francophone youths that has uh, an anti-Semitic dimension. Uh, more profoundly, uh, the early kind of support and sympathy that he articulated for the independence movement in Quebec, um, he kind of changed tone on that in later years because he began to see that these, these young French men and women that he had been so close to in the early years at a time when French and English artists and sculptors and painters and filmmakers and poets uh, mixed and drank and made love together, that begins to end with the independence movement. And, and he hears the rhetoric of, of a kind of uh, anti-Semitic anti rhetoric coming out of that movement. Um, and he doesn't like it. He said, you know, he says somewhere, uh, I was kind of surprised by that because I thought we were friends. Um, so I, it's not anti-Semitism directed at Leonard Cohen per se. It's just a kind of general critique of, of Jews as the ownership class in Montreal uh, and resented as such. And he's aware of that uh, and he doesn't like it. Um, so, you know, um, I don't think he felt it much personally, um, but he was certainly aware. And there's that famous um, performance where he gives the Sieg Heil in Germany. Mm. Several times, a couple times, he does that. He he's completely drugged up as he goes on stage, or or drunk. I'm not sure which which drug was was involved, but he he literally goes on stage and he's he's carrying his guitar on his. It's behind him so that the strap is in his front, across his body, and the <laughs> strap is black, like the SS strap, the the, the, <laughs> the strap the SS the Nazi SS wore, and he. And he gives the Sig Heil in Hamburg. And then again, I think in, in Berlin and the audience, you know, this is still not that many years after the second world war and they are, they, they can't stand the very idea of Nazism. And here's this, this Jewish performer <laughs> saluting them in the Nazi style. Um, it's, it took a lot of chutzpah to do that, believe me. Um, but, but he did, yeah. It was kind of a subversive move, I guess. It's a subversive move. It's 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 um, it's it's an fo. I think basically. 
Um, Karen was asking if you interviewed some of the women that he had relationship with and if there was any bitterness there or resentment. Mostly not. There, there, there are in later books a couple where there is bitterness, where, where women felt he had led them on or promised even marriage, which seems unlikely given who Leonard Cohen was, but, but it isn't impossible that he might have he might have, you know, led them on in some fashion, and so there is there are a couple uh, that ended quite badly, but but in the main, overwhelmingly, they ended pretty well. And people who uh, you might have people who who you would have thought would have been hurt by him and his infidelities um, just forgave him. That was who Leonard Cohen was. He had to move on, you know. He was the stranger. I told you when I came, I was a stranger, and 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 he he had to move on. Um, but he had a lot of um, he had a lot of bravado, you know. He 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 managed to juggle these things in a, in a uh, seemingly effortless way. It's it's quite extraordinary. Um, Laura asked, what happened with the expectations that he joined the family business, which was clothing business, right? It probably would have been the clothing business. He spent one summer working there, sewing buttons on, uh, on suits and working in the back room in the factory, and he hated it. He hated every minute of it. Um, I'm not sure whether he hated that or his one semester in law more, but he, it, it, this guy was born to be a writer. These pressures were there. He felt them from his mother. He felt them from his uncles. But he was determined to be his own man. I mean, you could argue, and I think it's probably a safe interpretation. I, I don't want to state it categorically. But, but the fact that his father was not alive to guide him into the family business and to exert even more pressure on him to, to answer the Cohen tradition um, may have freed him in a way to be his own person. Um, had his father lived, it, things might have been a little different. But he he was he had this strength in him, and he you know he he knew what he wanted to do. He didn't know if he could do it, but he knew what he wanted to do, and he was determined to give it a try. And he was very courageous in that when he finally gave up the. Uh you know, the law degree and, and the family business, he was like, I'm doing this, whether it works or not. Yeah, I'm going to give this a try, you know, exactly right. You know, he had gone into law somewhat reluctantly. It was kind of the fallback position because he was writing poetry, but goodness, you know, how could anybody make a living as a poet in Canada in 1956? Um, so he gives it a shot. It's not for him. He drops out. He begins work on his novel. And he's living with his mother. Things aren't great, but you know this is the path I've chosen. Let me see what I can do. And uh, and then he spends a year at Columbia. Um, comes back home, keeps writing, uh, and and on the strength, I guess, of uh, the first book, let us compare mythologies, and um, and on the strength probably of of a yet then unpublished manuscript. Uh, the Spice Box of Earth, he wins the Canada Council Prize and, and gets to Idra, um, and, and thus it begins. So one final question, uh, when can we hope for your next two volumes? 
Well, in a perfect world, which we don't live in, uh, but God willing, um, the second volume would appear next fall. I don't know which month, probably October. Uh, so 2021, October. And the third volume, a year after that. Um, they're, they're pretty well advanced in development, but, but there's still some, some holes and some voices that I need to, to fill in, to, gaps that need to be filled in. So they're coming along, but um, stay tuned. Well, we'll watch for that. And I wanna recommend everybody run out, get this book. Leonard Cohen, Untold Stories. It looks great. It even smells great. It's a great read, <laughs> um, a great gift. And it's been an honor and a privilege to speak with you, Michael. The honor and privilege is mine. Thank you, Jacob, for doing this. I really appreciate it.